Sam Walton. If his name isn't familiar with, with, uh, with you off first blush, you probably shopped with him. Uh, Sam's Club, Walmart, Sam Walton. In 1979, Sam bought a red pickup truck and he drove that until the day he died in 1992. You say, well, big deal. My, uh, my dad, my granddad did the same thing. Um, well, I think it's kind of interesting because he probably could have afforded a little better car, don't you think? And uh, this is what he says about it. And by the way, it was a base model uh, vehicle that he, that he bought and drove all those years. He said, I, I just don't believe a big showy lifestyle is appropriate. Why would I drive, uh, why do I drive a pickup truck? What am I supposed to haul my dogs around in, a Rolls Royce? So I think this is kind of a nice example of humility, but far more significant for us, of course, is the example of the one who, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake to enrich us. And we will look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ today as we continue in the book of Philippians. We have reached chapter 2. We're doing Philippians in chunks this summer, uh, half a chapter a week. And so here come the first 11 verses from Philippians 2 in your pew Bibles. This is found on page 1165. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible portion of Scripture in your providence uh, we have set before us today. We are children come into your presence and we seek your face. Uh, we know that these are rich words, they are good words, they are full of meaning. We believe them, Lord. We would ask you to help our unbelief. We would also ask that you might work in our, our lives in such a way that 
we might hear what your spirit is saying to the church. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to bear fruit in our lives. We want to walk in manners worthy of our calling in Christ. We want to honor and glorify you because of this time together in worship and in sitting under the preaching of the word of God, the gospel of the one who came to save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, at the end of Philippians 1, where we left off last week, Paul addresses unity amid outside opposition. Remember that? Striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents. And it goes on from there. So Paul addresses unity from outside opposition. And today in our passage, at the start of chapter 2, he continues in this theme of unity but this time it's against internal strife instead. And uh, we're going to look at encouragement in Christ and then the two states of Christ. That's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at encouragement in Christ and what that means and the two states of Christ. Our passage starts out by saying, so. I think, I think the NAS renders it, therefore. And if there's a therefore, you've already always got to look why, what it's there for. So, therefore, if there is, and, and he lists a series of conditional statements. There's different kinds of conditional statements in the original language, but this one implies that the answer is yes. If there is in, any encouragement in Christ, and there is, in fact, if could be rightly translated since or because. Because there is encouragement in Christ. Uh, since there is encouragement in Christ. And what does he mean by this? Verses 1 through 4. Encouragement. If you've been around the church very long, many of you have. You know that the word is parakaleo, one, one who is called alongside a comforter. Uh, it's used elsewhere of the Holy Spirit. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort. And then consolation. A uh, rare word, in fact, only used here in the Greek New Testament. Meaning soothing words and actions. And then it also addresses something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Koinonia, that participation, that partnership, that gospel fellowship, that teamwork in the truth, sharing, and community. He also mentions affection and sympathy. Affection, deep-seated emotions, and, and tender mercies that we should have fondness. We should care for one another and enjoy one another's company. And sympathy, uh, compassion about someone else's difficulty or misfortune. I tried to say this last week, but I found a commentator who says it more succinctly than I did. There is no true unity where there is no unity in truth. I'll repeat that. There is no true unity where there is no unity in truth. The gospel is central to true unity. Of course, it's possible to have some measure of unity apart from the gospel. 
uh, sports fans of all ages, including those of different ethnic backgrounds or political affiliations, rally around their favorite team. And you can often stir up people to band together for one cause or another, often pitting them against yet other folks in the process. But it is the priority of the good news of Jesus Christ that causes our differences to become secondary in a lasting, life-changing way. The Apostle Paul knew very well the difference between the Hebrews and the people of the surrounding nations, just as he understood gender and also socio-political status. Paul, uh, and the, the Reformation Study Bible says this about that, Paul does not obliterate these distinctions, but indicates they give no preferential status in terms of our union with Christ. And his point is that human nature is such that we certainly all have one thing, at least, in common, and that's sin. Sin and the effects of the fall are so grievous, so widespread, and so ingrained in our nature that the only hope for sinful, fallen people is to look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he is the source of true unity, our unity. We are to have the same mind, the same love, one mind, to all be in one accord, a shared purpose. And I would say to you, your first bullet point under letter A, encouragement in Christ, is the key to having unity is humility. The key to having unity is humility. And when I speak on humility, forgive me, but I have a stock quote I use because I think it is so profound, and it's from C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking little of yourself. It is thinking of yourself little. It's not thinking little of yourself. I'm, I'm the dregs of the earth. I'm pond scum. I'm just a worm. No, it's thinking of yourself little. It's not being focused on yourself. It's not always being so self-conscious. We are not to have selfish ambition, rivalries, factions. We are not to be conceited, which means vainglorious. Same thinking doesn't mean groupthink, by the way, but it means that we have Union with Christ together, we recognize one another that we're sinners in need of a great Savior. We have union in, with Christ together. We share that commonality as well. And then we are aligned to his mission, the Great Commission. And that gives us this shared purpose, being in one accord. Your next bullet point, being Christ-centered then, allows you to be others-centered. Being Christ-centered allows you to be other-centered. Verse 4. Being other-centered doesn't mean to have an inferiority complex, but it stems from the security of knowing your identity in Christ. Being others-centered doesn't mean that you're, you're kind of deflecting and it's a self-defense mechanism and you never share what's really going on with you or or are vulnerable or transparent to let anybody know what's going on with you, but being self-centered self is not attractive. 
Self-centeredness simply is not attractive. Tim, Tim Keller says, there's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. Have you ever known somebody who is self-absorbed? It doesn't draw you to them, does it? And sometimes we get hung up in the paralysis of analysis, right? In navel-gazing, we're so fixated on ourselves. How am I doing? How am I feeling? Am I happy? Are my needs being met? We're so focused on ourselves that we're of little use to the kingdom. But being Christ-centered allows us to forget about ourselves to some degree and to fulfill the law of Christ, to love others. 17th century Puritan Richard Baxter says, humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It's a contradiction, he says, to be a sanctified man or a true Christian and not be humble. Humility goes part and parcel, in other words, with being a Christian. Uh, Adolf Kors IV, uh, one of the heirs of the beer fortune, he's a very interesting gentleman, he's lived a very interesting life, and he says, people wouldn't be so concerned what others think of them if they realized how seldom they do. In his landmark work, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. So the gospel of Christ is not about self-advancement. It's not about self-protection. But it's about the selfless Christ who has freed us from sin so that we can serve others. Now we're going to look at, so that's a, a little bit about encouragement in Christ. By the way, my favorite verse about encouragement is Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Lest your hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So encouragement in Christ isn't just a feel-good, it's not just a, a fun thing, an accoutrement to the Christian life. It's necessary. If you're not encouraging one another, if you're not receiving encouragement in Christ, you could be deceived and fall into sin. Next from our passage, we look at two, the two states of Christ, and they are Christ's state of humiliation and Christ's state of exaltation, respectively. If you want to learn to be humble and other-centered, look to Jesus. That's what the passage says. Have this same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. I think that's the, the main point of what Paul is trying to say here. Train your mind to think like him. Have this as your mindset. Christ's state of humiliation. Although he is equal in power and glory and in his essential nature to the Father and to the Spirit, we see exemplified in his life this voluntary subjection within the Godhead, right? The, the Son says of the Father, 
uh, I can do no more than what the Father shows me to do. There's this voluntary subjection within the Godhead. Theologians refer to this sometimes as the economic trinity, the inner workings of the household in the three persons of the Godhead. We see in Christ this self-abasement, how he laid down his life for us, his friends. There's no greater love, right? John 15. You might do well to review verses 12 through 17. We'll not take the time right now to do that. In verse 6, describing our Savior and Lord Jesus, it says that he didn't regard humil uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't clingy. He wasn't clutchy about it, as people sometimes are, as I sometimes am. Uh, read in the Old Testament. Read about King Saul. King Saul was a people pleaser. He was desperate to hold on to his office. You remember the encounter with him and the prophet? And he's, you know, he has sinned, and, and, and he blames, he blame shifts. He blames it on, you know, the, well, you were late, or, or this wouldn't have happened. And he, he, he blame shifts, and he's concerned ultimately about appearances. He, want, he insists that the prophet go up with him because he's clingy, he's clutchy about his kingship. And then we see this. In the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we see the religious elite, the religious establishment, and how they despise Jesus, and they, they conspire together to get rid of him. Not only him, Lazarus, too. Some of the evidence of Christ's ministry, right? They want to do away with them. Why? Because they're clingy, they're clutchy, they're provincial in their attitude, they're provincial in their mindset. This is my little piece of the pie, and no one's going to take it from me. And Jesus is nothing like that. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I've got uh, uh, some subpoints for you under letter B, Christ's state of humiliation, which is basically from conception and birth all the way through his crucifixion. That's what we mean by the state of humiliation. And so the question that leaps to the fore in this passage, at least it does for me as I read it, is of what did Jesus empty himself? Of what did Jesus empty himself? This passage is famous in theolo theological circles. Treatises, books by theologians far better than me pages, ink has been spilled on this. But it comes down to this. If you boil it all down, I think, of what did Jesus emptied himself? Did you notice when we sang our hymn together, um, my wife's favorite, and can it be that I should gain? Um, he left, verse 3, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Humbled himself, says Trinity, humbled himself, so great his love. Now, some of you all who have been in the church for a good piece, you, you, you know this song well. It's a rousing song, is it not? And, and you know this song, and when we got there, you thought, you had a little cognitive dissonance, I bet, because you thought, hmm, I don't think that's quite the way I remembered it. More commonly, the words of Charles Wesley emptied himself 
And how does it go? Emptied himself. I'm doing a solo. This is not good. Of all but love. So the editors for Trinity have done a little work here for us. Why? Because of Philippians 2. Why? Because the question is raised, of what did Jesus empty himself? Did he empty himself as Wes Wesley? And we're not meaning to pick on Wesley. Poetically, lyrically, says, emptied himself of all but love, meaning because of, of his great love for us, no greater love, he was willing to empty himself. The question still remains, of what did he empty himself? Did he ever stop being God? Did he empty himself of divinity? No, he chose not to make use of his omniscience and omnipresence and things like that. He was true man, not like a man, not an apparition, not a phantasm. He was true man. He took to himself a true body. In, in so many words, our passage says, then of what did he empty himself? In short, I would say to you, his glory. He emptied himself of some of his glory, of his majesty, of his rights and privileges as the king. Now, the word does say, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, but he did not come in the way that was expected. He did not assert his rights and privileges as the king of all kings. He chose not to make full use of those rights and assumed the posture of a slave, a servant. Next sub-point under uh, Christ's state of humiliation, number two, Jesus is one person with two natures, and that is taught in this passage, and I've already spoken to it in brief. Fully human and fully divine. Again, theologians have, you know, they've, they've written their dissertations on this. It's called the hypostatic union. How can one person have two natures together? This is reflected in many of the creeds and confessions of our faith, going back at least to the Nicene Creed in the fourth century, which speaks of Christ and in uh, saying that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Substance, the theologians of old loved that term, uh, I think it's fair that for us to understand, because when we, we talk about substance, we think about tactile stuff you can touch. So substance, if that word troubles you at all, I think it's a reasonable substitution uh, of the same essence, of the same divine nature. If you flip over your sermon outline onto the back, I provided for you part of our standards, part of the constitution of our denomination in chapter 8. I've excerpted paragraph two there for your convenience. This is what it says about Jesus. The Son of God, the second person in the, in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance, there it is again, and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, 
take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, that's the qualifier, right? Yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, get this, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Where'd they get that? First Timothy, right? We could look in the larger catechism, questions and answers number 36 through 40, about the person of Christ, or the Athanasian Creed. We could go on and on. Jesus is one person with two natures, fully human, fully divine. He took the form of a servant or slave, and it was made in the likeness of men, the exact nature. He took to himself a true human body. So part of understanding this so-called hypostatic union is not just of what did Jesus empty himself, but of what, Je what did Jesus take to himself. He took to himself a true body. And that's important. That's why St. Anselm of old wrote, Cur Deus Homo, why the God-man, to address this mystery, this question of how one person could have two natures. And then number three in your outline, B3, his crosswork. Philippians 2 speaks of the finished, complete crosswork, this cruel execution of our Lord, and for weeks and months now, we've been referring to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, the New Testament, Galatians 3.13, when it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And that's what Jesus did. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the Father. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, a lot of times people wear a cross around their neck. They'll wear wooden ones on a leather strap, usually that's guys, or a silver one or a mother of pearl, or, you know, whatever. And they're, they're wearing, sometimes for them it's just jewelry, it's just something pretty, or it's an heirloom handed down from grandma, right? I ask people, when I see them wearing a cross, I'll say, oh, I, I, I love what you're wearing there. Tell me, what does that mean to you? because their answer belies something of what they're thinking. They might just say, oh, grandma gave it to me, or it's pretty, or I thought it looked cool. It's wearing the device of capital punishment around your neck. It's as if we were wearing, we walked around wearing injection needles, or electric chairs, or guillotines. I don't mean to be morbid, but that's a fact. This was the manner of death that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ underwent of his own volition. No one took his life from him. He laid it down voluntarily. Thank the Lord that he had the power to take it back up again. It was done out of humility. It was done out of obedience to the Father. It was done to fulfill scripture. It was done so that he would drink the cup. Father, take this cup from me. If, if, if it's your will, let this cup pass. Take this cup from me. What cup? 
What is this cup he's always talking about? We, we should trace the story of the cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath, which is his righteous indignation and judgment that is to be poured out upon all unrighteousness. And he drank it down to the bitter dregs, taking the wrath of God on himself as our substitute in our place so that we wouldn't have to. God's righteous judgment fell once and for all on him and not on his people. This is his state of humiliation. His, the other state is his state of exaltation. So if humiliation goes from conception and birth, uh, his righteous life, uh, suffering under the law, and in a humble and low estate and all that, and his cursed death on the cross, if that's the state of humiliation, state of exaltation begins with his resurrection. I guess state of humiliation we might include remaining under the power of death for a time also. But his state of exaltation from his resurrection to his post-resurrection appearances to his ascension on high to his session where he rules and reigns and intercedes from heaven now and his return in glory one day. For this reason, our passage says, for what reason? For this reason, God bestowed on him the name that is above all names. For what reason? Because of his perfect obedience, because of his humility, because he emptied himself, because he took to himself a true human body. For this very reason, God exalted him and bestowed on him that name that is above every name. What, what, it, what name is that? There are many names. Time would fail me were I to attempt to recount them all. His name is Jesus. Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Savior, Salvation. His name is Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the King, even He who is coming into the world. His name is Lord in this passage. Every kneel bow, every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord of glory. He is Jehovah God. He is the great I am. He is master. He is owner. He is king. He is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the one through whom everything that has been made was made. He is the one that everything holds together by. It's not laminin or DNA or gravity or physics or quantum theory. It's Jesus that sustains all things by word of his power. He is from everlasting to everlasting, from before the foundations of the earth. He is God. He is the eternal one. He is the name of above every name. His is. One theologian says that Christ's exaltation, the process began by which the equality with God that Jesus always possessed would be acknowledged by all creation. He always possessed it, but he emptied himself. He became a servant for you and for me. 
Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah about his name. This comes from the 45th chapter. There is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Do you glory in that name? Do you bow the knee voluntarily now in your heart? Not only once long ago on the day of salvation, but now? Do you still worship him? Do you glory in that name? It's the name above every name. You know, the world doesn't like it when we talk this way. If we want to get together and just have a little club and be nice to each other, that's okay. If we want to do some good works, we should be a people zealous for good works. If you want to do some good works, you want to help the community, hold a blood drive, collect clothing, uh, hold ESL classes, these are good things. And the world may permit you to do that. I don't know if they'll applaud but they'll at least permit. But then begin to talk about Jesus and begin to talk about the fact that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Why not do so now voluntarily before it's too late? Now you're, now you're starting trouble. They don't like that kind of talk. One day every knee will bow in honor and veneration and devotion those that know him or recognizing perhaps that they've been judged righteously. In one of her works, 19th century abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, the truth is the kindest thing we can give folks in the end. The truth is the kindest thing we can give folks in the end. We need to give them the truth. We need to give them Jesus. We need to preach the word. Jesus who lived a perfect life, he preached the word. You know that old adage, one of the, uh, Francis of Assisi or some other, you know, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. I mean, I, I, I get that, meaning your life should exemplify, you know, the, the walk better match the talk, but we need the talk. If Jesus, the perfect son of God, come in the flesh, if he proclaimed and announced and heralded the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom is near you, the kingdom is at hand because the king is here. Mark 2.2, Jesus, the, the place was packed. People wanted healing. And what did Jesus do? Jesus preached the good news to them. How much more must we do the same? We're not doing a disservice when we tell people the truth. We're doing them a service. It's the name above every name, and our response is to worship and to profess our faith in Him. To worship. We've already talked about that. To profess openly with your whole heart. 
without reservation, not holding anything back. Revelation 19, read verses 11 to 16. See, if you're prepared for the coming of our Lord in the way that he will come again, in which his kingship will be unmistakable, and, and no eye will, will miss it. As a result, God gets the glory, and we praise the name of Jesus together. It's so important that Jesus came in the flesh, is it not? Um, I've got a little story here. I haven't mislaid it. Got too many papers going on. Maybe the Lord doesn't want me to share it. About the importance of Jesus coming in the flesh, and I can't seem to lay my hand on it. All right. I won't share it. I'll just say this. Theologians write and debate and discuss. Commentators spill much ink, as I have said, on, on, on whether this chapter, or at least a portion of it, verses 6 through 11, uh, is thought of to be an ancient Christian hymn. If Paul himself did not write it, that he co-opted it from use in the church in that day, and theologians write whole treatises on canonic theory of, of what did Jesus empty himself much more eloquently in much more detail and with greater theological precision that I could possibly have in this hour and perhaps in a lifetime. They love to debate the hypostatic union and its merits and meaning and limitations. But I think Paul's message was much more clearly simply for us to be like Jesus in our mindset, in our attitude, to arm ourselves with the same purpose, to have this same attitude. I think that's really the point. The Christology, the theology is beautiful, no doubt, and important for the church, certainly. But Christ, I'm sorry, Paul was talking about Christ to people like Euodia and Syntyche. He was talking to people in the church that he cared about. He was encouraging that they would foster healthy and appropriate and loving relationships in the local body, the church. He was exhorting people to live humbly, to give regard to others, to be not consumed with your own interests, but to be, as he says elsewhere, I think it's next week of Timothy, to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. How can that be? How can that come about? Only by Christ. Only as we have union with him. Only as we, in humility, regard one another as more important than ourselves. Only as we recognize that we were sinners and we have a great Savior together. Easy to say, much harder to live out. Let's give praise to our crucified and risen Savior in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, elsewhere the word says of you that you had to be made like your brethren. You had to be. This was, this was not a contingency. This was not an uh-oh or a do-over, a mulligan. This was 
your plan and your wisdom from all eternity past. Help us not to miss the day of our visitation. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll praise God in song. Fittingly, I think, by standing with your half-page insert to sing in Christ alone. I'll stand.
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said.